Welcome to this week's episode of The Haber Show. Special guest this week is LA Times national NBA writer Dan Wojcicki. He just got back from the Kawhi Leonard return to Toronto. He'll take us through what Boardman Gets a Ring was like. All that was pretty special watching it from the couch, but he'll take us through what it was like there on the ground. We'll also get into the trade season opening, what will happen with Kevin Love, Blake Griffin, Chris Paul. We'll also take the temperatures of the Lakers and the Clippers where he's based and talk about his fun story about NBA head coach wellness. And with that, I bring you Dan Wojcicki. Dan Wojcicki, how's it going, my man? Hello, Tom. I learned that Andre Drummond is suiting up after a food allergy that he did not know about. He had an adverse reaction to an avocado that caused him to have his eyes swell up. Dan, your analysis. I think um, it will probably help his free throw shooting. And then I also think that this means that he will never sign anywhere west of Utah. Because um, it's impossible to avoid avocados west of Utah. They're everywhere. So, Dan, you're based in L.A. You're the national columnist yeah. for, the, uh, for the L.A. Times. Swimming in, swimming in avocados, Tom, in California. Just Part of your in interview, was it like, how do you like your avocado? Yeah, it's like, do you want it on a toast? Um, do you like to mash it? Um, slice it? Maybe with the breakfast? I prefer it on a toast. I prefer it like kind of pressed with a little black pepper. Some onions. Yeah, uh, this is the trade season opening preview, December 15th. Uh, all free agents that signed in the offseason are now eligible yeah. to be traded as of Sunday. And so now we can just strike off the Lakers and the Clippers. Uh, Phoenix, I guess you throw them in there for Andre Drummond. Yeah, too much guacamole there, for sure. Yeah, because I think uh, at this point in my life, you're a dad, so you appreciate this. I yeah. used to slice my avocado and then sprinkle some olive oil on it and then toss in some salt, right? Okay. But I've cut out the middleman. I don't use the knife anymore. I just hold the half avocado in my hand, sprinkle the olive oil mm-hmm. in there like it's a bowl almost, and then uh, I sprinkle the, the salt and then I eat it with a spoon. I thought you were going to say, then you just smash it in your face because <laughs> you've got no time. Just like like a... Like a clown in a in a shaving cream pie. My son's five months old now, and I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen him in a couple of days, so I hope this hasn't changed. But like, he he's still at the point where he hasn't like fully affected how I eat yet. I, I'm eating faster, which I'm sure is not healthy, um, because you know you want to like you if if I'm home, it's like I try to hold him and, and do as much as I can to kind of free up my wife to do stuff. Um, but so I'm eating a lot faster. But generally speaking, it, it really hasn't like – I would still – I guess what I'm saying is I would still think I'd have time to slice my avocados. Maybe I'm going to learn that I'm going to go home after one of these road trips and I'm going to try to make some food and so I'm going to look at him and he's going to look at me and it's going to be like, fine, boxed macaroni and cheese it is. And then this is like the next 17 years of my life. It's the multiplier effect, Dan. It's, it's that I have multiple kids, so it's just I, I'm juggling too much. And uh, there's yeah. no time for a plate anymore. It's just – maximize the the space in your dishwasher maximize your time you just become more efficient when you become uh you know you add kids to the line you know it's it's no different than an nba player who's getting up there in age and realizes i can't be taking these mid-range shots anymore it's not good for my field goal percentage 
You're talking about Carmelo? Are you talking about Carmelo? Oh, yeah, sorry. You're talking about Carmelo. We can talk about <laughs> Carmelo. Uh, that, I don't know. I feel like he's still taking those long twos. I don't think it's ever getting out of his system. It didn't work in Houston, that's for sure. That's for sure. I think you are who I, think you, are who you are as a general rule. Um, Literally and, stay mellow. Yeah, and I, and I think that he is a player that, by all accounts, like it wasn't like it didn't work in Houston because Carmelo was a jerk and um, wouldn't accept kind of a, a lesser role. And it, that was the same thing, you know, at least my understanding about what happened in Oklahoma City. I think it was more of just like almost like an incapability to do it. And then at a certain point, kind of the diminishing returns of it. So, you know, if you're in Houston and he's only playing eight minutes a game, let's just say, you know, or 12 minutes a game and he's your 10th man because that's what you've decided what his skills kind of demand. Like the, the sort of the return is like, it's probably best if he's something. Then now you have to sit and you have to field mellow questions the entire season about him being the 10th man. And uh, it's probably not worth it. And I think what I've noticed at least early on here, like with sort of the Portland experience and, you know, I saw it in LA, uh, the Blazers came in a couple of days after mellow one uh, player of the week. And it's all anybody talked about um, pregame, postgame, you know, either team, it was Carmelo, Carmelo, Carmelo. He's wildly famous. And when you're wildly famous in a league that has a lot of people covering it, um, these are going to be like, it kind of, the, the narrative gets sort of written before it even starts. And he demands a lot of attention. And I think you have to have a place where people are comfortable and confident in, in their sort of where they are on like the celebrity uh, superstar pecking order. And then you also have to be, I think from a basketball standpoint, a place that can absorb him doing what he does. And, you know, Portland's so banged up. It seems like a, a decent enough fit, and I'm happy that he's in the league. But it's a lot of mellow talk. It's a lot of mellow. What if it's as simple as this? He's like an old car that just has to keep the ignition going, and if he has to play off the bench, it just doesn't work. I mean, yeah. I think that could, that could be part of it, What too. if he was just I mean, like, Portland, I, I will play, I will sign if you thrust yeah. me into the starting role right away. Because that that like that is the uh, Occam's razor here is that Mello all that talk in Houston of like I'm I'm good coming off the bench whatever Mike D'Antoni wants I don't know what if it's just he was waiting for an opportunity where the four position would open up like it did in Portland and then they pounce and they said yep we will we will let you uh, start and it, it was a rough first week and then he started to get his rhythm um, he hasn't maintained that level of the player of the week and no one expected it but um, sure. I think it might be as simple as uh, he wanted to start. I think, too, though, it's like it's not just it can't just be the starting, though, because I can't envision him like in sort of the Keith Bogans. That that's to me is like the memorial show starter where you never do anything uh, like that could like he can't do that. Right. Like he he needs like he needs uh, an amount of oxygen on offense to sort of breathe. And, and, and that means taking a lot of shots. I mean. You know, he's played 11 games for them. He's third on the team in field goal attempts, kind of right below Lillard and McCollum as, as it makes sense. And I think, you know, he's the, the third alpha to borrow a uh, another Chicago <laughs> Chicago Bull team turn. He's the third of the three alphas in Portland, which probably speaks to Portland's problems. Wait, wait, wait. You're saying Hassan Whiteside is not an alpha? Nope. He's wow. a beta. Well, you didn't cover him in I Miami, know. I guess. Um, so you, uh, just coming back from 
a trip to Toronto for the Kawhi return. And look, they're just yeah. giving out tribute videos to everybody these days, huh? Like it was, anybody. It, it, was, it was funny. Um, so it's the 25th anniversary of the Raptors, um, which has led us to the terrific uniforms and the the fun court that we saw last night. Um, or, yeah, Wednesday night. And um, as part of the 25th anniversary, I've been told that as players come back, um, you know, if you've played for the Raptors, that you get kind of a quick little video. What I found to be funny was that Lou Williams got the video. I didn't see a Patrick Patterson video, who's actually who played way more games, almost three, I think three times as many games for the Raptors as Lou Williams did. Never won a six-man there. Um, but, you know, it was funny. The Clippers had a chance, like, had, had they gone – like letter to the law for their like sort of their their tribute video universe, the Clippers could have hypothetically have gotten one two five separate trivia five separate tribute videos last night right. six 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 so Kawhi one obviously Lou Williams Patrick Patterson Rex Clemanian could have gotten oh. one okay. Uh, yeah. Did Doc play for the uh, Raptors at one point in his career? He did. He he did not. But Clippers G League general manager D Brown, who was there last oh. night, was on the first Raptors team and played in the opener. He could have gotten one. Um, he was a team captain, a former Raptors captain. And then the the fun sort of secondary one to this. And and I was sitting next to a Raptors staffer at the game who told me like this is going to happen. And I was like, you're lying. He's like, no, this is going to happen. Um, Fiondo Cavangeli, the Clippers first round draft pick, got a tribute video last night. What is going um, on? Because he's Canadian, and they also do a Canadian Heritage tribute video. So <laughs> it was his Florida State highlights. It was r- really fun. <laughs> I, I kind of joked on Twitter that I did like 13 games last year in the playoffs, and, and uh, I was talking with the Raptors PR staff about what my tribute video would be. It would probably just be me like slow-mo ordering Thai food and high-alcohol beer. <laughs> It's a great time right now for a high alcoholic beer. The winter, they come out the uh, the imperial stouts. It is time. Uh, yeah, the uh, the bourbon barrel um, barley wines and all, all of that stuff. It's uh, oh yeah, just like it's really just boozy syrup at a certain point, Tom. Um, and I'm not complaining, but it's mostly just boozy syrup. Yeah, it is. And I, I had one the other night. Um, a Mexican stout, so it's like hot, spicy, hot chocolate, but basically they throw some alcohol in it. And uh, nice. it's from Westbrook Brewing in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. And I, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, I'm definitely getting a Westbrook beer. And then it turns out eleven, eleven percent. Yeah, eleven percent. Um, it was great. It was so delicious. it's Westbrook's field goal percentage. That's right. Uh, I knew the the, and I knew that's where it was going. I knew it was okay. where it was going. Um, if I was Jade, I would hit the ding. Um, that was that was one of those things that when I first saw, I was like, man, if I was an NBA player, I think Kevin Euclid has his own brewery. Um, if I was an NBA player and I had a whole bunch of money, I would just start up uh, beers and have them as like random player names. Kevin Arnovitz will go to different Kimpton hotels and bring in mm-hmm. uh, the gold. You can go to the front desk and get a goldfish. And he will, depending on the city, he will name, he will order a goldfish in a goldfish bowl, of course, a fish bowl. Um, they will outfit it with like little pebbles and uh, the, I guess like a plant, a plastic plant. And you can have a pet goldfish in your room and he will name the fish after an obscure player in that NBA city. Isn't that delightful? Oh, that's, that's very charming. That was very folksy. Yeah. So, uh, so he, I don't think Sorry, was in Toronto. Drag- 
Did you just FaceTime I just accidentally, me? Yeah, I just accidentally FaceTimed you. I'm sorry. I apologize. In the middle of a podcast? I know. I just had, it's been Not so long. Not even 12 minutes in, man. <laughs> so last night, uh, or I guess Wednesday night, you're in Toronto. I watched the tribute video, uh, I guess the, the feed from, from the game. And I feel like the Knicks just take notes. Hire whoever does the PR for the Toronto Raptors. Hire the president of basketball operations. Hire everything about the Raptors because they could not have done a better job with that that video. It wasn't too long. Um, And granted, they only had, what, 62 games plus the playoffs to to deal with. Um, And then the footprints, that must have been amazing to watch in person. Yeah, it was a... um... It was pretty perfect of a moment. Um, at first, you know, I, I'll be honest, like the footprints, like I just noticed the spotlight on the basket when the lights went dark for like the shot. And kind of what I wrote in my column was that it, it was the perfect highlight to not show the video to because nobody there needs to see it. Like everybody knows that by heart, right? You know that photo. It's such an iconic thing. Um, and it was cool just to hear it in the dark and just have everybody, it was, it was a very shared experience. It was, it, you're right. It was amazing where they handled it. It was a perfect outline of his, you know, 10 months with the Raptors, um, hitting everything from, you know, the fun guy answer to the ha ha ha, um, to what a do baby. Um, like we got all of it, right? Like it, it was, it was a greatest hits of that season. And, um, like highlighted by that this sort of special presentation of that, and, and yeah, I mean, I think it just speaks again to their sort of organizational competency, right? It's 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 a it is a place where you trust their decisions, you trust their development, you trust um, just about everything that that they're going to play hard and do things sort of the right way. It's a it's a good organization, and they've got good ownership and they've got good infrastructure, and turns out they have really good game ops and PR people too, <laughs> you know, and, and creative people because. Uh, it was really special, and I think for someone like Kawhi, um, who we know very little about, I, I thought it was it was interesting that that day at shoot around, he said he thought he might get boot. He's like, I play for another team now. He's very pragmatic about it. Um, like he's beloved there, and he has to know that. And um, I, I think you could feel that not only was he loved by the fans, but loved by his teammates, loved by his coaching staff, loved by the front office. Um, this wasn't a nasty, a nasty split. So, which most of them are in the NBA, right? Like this was actually kind of like, thanks for coming by, man. Like it was really fun having you at our place. Isn't it crazy how well he executed his plan, Kawhi? Like for someone who everyone thought was just like had no clue what he was doing, and he just was uh, a robot program to make baskets at a high level. This seems like one of those things that we get it all wrong. Like, maybe you shouldn't talk to media. Maybe you should just keep to yourself, and then these sort of things happen. I mean, I would never advocate for this out loud, Tom. (laughs) This would never be something that I would say that there's a straight line between those two. But, I mean, I think, you know, ultimately, right, this is the the power of winning. And then I I also think that it's sort of like when you have clear objectives and you follow said objectives – like people tend to respect that, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think had had Kawhi had the narrative been with him all year that like you know he wants to go back to LA, he wants to be close to home, he wants to be a Clipper, he wants to kind of 
be the star in his home, in his home city. Um, and then he went and signed with the Knicks. Like mm. he may, maybe he doesn't get cheered the same way. You know what I mean? That I think it, it was such a, it was such an easy decision for people to understand. Um, and I think that if there's one market in the NBA that also has, I'm going to generalize for a minute that has like pretty friendly people who follow it, who are willing to give people the benefit of the doubt. I mean, this is a city like there were, I did an event, um, the night before where, you know, it was people gathered around just to talk about like Kawhi coming back. Like it was like a big game, sort of like podcasty show type thing. And, um, there was nobody there who was going to boo him. And it wasn't like a I moment of like, of, Ooh, I don't know how this is going to play. No, like never. I, I, I mean, I didn't believe so. I, I, I thought it was just for those reasons that it was, you know, he left on such good terms on such a high note. Um, you know, it was like the perfect high school girlfriend that goes to college across the country. It's like, what are you going to do? Like she got into Stanford. You know what I mean? Like, like she's gonna, she's gonna leave. She's gonna leave New York. She's going, and you can't do anything about it. And it was, you just have to enjoy it for what it was. And I think that was sort of the Raptors fans' attitude with Kawhi. Um, he went where kind of it seemed like he was always gonna go. He didn't leave him for the Lakers or for a super team. I still think he would have gotten cheered because he won. But let's say they'd even lost those finals, he still would have gotten cheered. He still would have been adored. Um, the fact that they gave him the ring. Um, the fact that they were able to kind of re-celebrate the title again last night, it, it was a lock that it, it was going to go well. Have you noticed being in L.A., uh, him open up more, or is he as close to the vest as he's ever been? I mean, I, I would never use the term open up to describe. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I think what, what's funny about Kawhi is that if you ask him good questions, I think you can get good answers. I, I just think that... Well, then both of us are screwed, man. Yeah, I know, I know. I, but I would say, like, I think there's like a literalism to him, um, to where it makes asking questions to be kind of weird, and then also like a sort of a, a general distrust of the process of doing media, that ultimately leads to some of the awkward exchanges and and you know, um, like he yeah, was take us through that play year. when you dunked the ball there. Um, what do you want me to yeah, do? Ex- uh, I exactly, three exactly times right. And and put the ball in the hoop. Next question. I jumped as high as I could and tried to dunk. And then the block. I jumped as high as I could and tried to block the shot. Yeah, is that? You know pop, what I mean? You think that's and, pop too? Like, there's a little bit of pop in there. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Um, but you know, I, I think it's funny. Like people talk about him like he's a funny, engaging person. I mean, you see someone like Kyle Lowry, right? Who is like, I think, a pretty big and like a accessible NBA personality and, you know, got along with Kawhi really well. And, um, you could see kind of how much they genuinely liked each other. They went out to dinner last night after the game, um, a real relationship in the NBA, not a, you know, not just kind of like a, a one-off teammate thing. Like he got into the circle and like, that's not, it's hard to get there. And I think, um, you know, from a media standpoint, you know, we sit around and we wait for him like an hour or so after games while he gets his treatment and gets massaged and his ice bath and does all of this stuff to, to take care of his body. And then, you know, if we get five minutes with him and, you know, I, th- I think he's thoughtful. I think he's smart. I just don't think that he's all that concerned about like winning any of the, uh, what's the, what's the media award that we give to the best player or the, the best quote. Magic Johnson award. Magic Johnson, yeah, he's not interested. 
Yeah, that well, keeps us moving. I think, uh, but I think that actually makes you a better reporter too. Is that you start to think, all right, well, he's sure. not going to answer the the stock quote that I need for my third graph in my story. So I have to think a little bit about how I'm going to reach him. The same way that, like, I remember in Miami one time. I was sitting there just like so nervous about asking Pop a question because that was a thing. It was, mm-hmm. like, when social, when Twitter was taking off, there became I think it was Beckley Mason. It might have been who who like termed it um, getting popped because now because of social media, you could instantly react to reporters getting a a, sni- a snotty comment from Pop, a short you know uh, throwaway comment from Pop and it made the experience of asking questions more difficult. It made it like, all right, I really got to get this right. Not because I want to get a good answer, but because I feel like I'm going to get filleted on Twitter. So I remember I was, I was nervous and I was going to ask him a question. And then a veteran reporter who has been on the beat for like 20 years, uh, was in, in Miami for the Spurs game, asked him a question and he got popped and he stalled. He froze. And I got so I was like, wait a minute, if that guy can get popped, then I'm okay. Everyone here is going to get popped at some point. And I remember I asked uh, Pop a question and and it was fine. But like the fact that Pop was going to just like drill someone who he had known personally, who he had uh, talked to like probably a hundred times fielded questions from the person. And he still got the business. And um, Kawhi, I feel like is the same thing where you have to think on another level. I mean, I think with Pop, too, again, it's sort of like a disdain for sort of the idea of how it's done, right? Is that, like, I think Pop's issue isn't with, like, the press. It's more with the press conference in some ways. Like, because you talk to Pop, like, if you have, if you've had the opportunity to have, like, just, like, a one-off conversation with him about, say, like, you know, DeMar DeRozan or, um, you know, Manu or something like that, right? Like, it, or restaurants or anything that he's passionate about. He's totally great to talk to. He's smart. He's um, invested in the conversation. He's what you would expect out of somebody kind of like him, you know, a smart person. Like he's a, a really good conversationalist. Um, now put 10 cameras in his face and a bunch of people holding microphones that aren't going to partake in the conversation there. And, you know, he can be kind of an a-hole about it. He doesn't, like, wa- he doesn't you know, want to feel like a jukebox, right? He doesn't yeah, want to feel exactly. like, hey, like, tell like, me about this thing. Like, put in some effort, ask a pointed question with a real, like, a real thoughtful uh, delivery. If you're gonna, if you're gonna ask Pop, don't make him feel like a puppet. There was like, there was a game. I think it was this year. It might have been last year in LA, where a, a, like something had happened in politics, and basically the question that he got asked was like, "So Trump, huh? Like, come on, <laughs> do it." Do it. You hate Dude, him, don't you? Come did, on, do did, it. Did he find a stick off the ground and just start poking him? Uh, yeah, and he's like, he's like, next question. I'm not doing this. Uh, That's the you whole know, jukebox I, thing, man. You don't don't make him yeah. feel like a jukebox. And then the other thing is like before a game and stuff like that. Like you know, there are certain rules to it, right? Like you can't ask him about like what he's seen on film from a team. He won't answer that question. He's like, I don't watch film during the season. Steve Kerr um, did the same thing the other day. Steve Kerr, they're asking, like, hey, biggest story in the NBA, uh, Devontae Graham here in Charlotte, 
uh, he has been amazing filling in for Kemba Walker. He's averaging 20 points a game. Uh, what have you seen from Devonte, uh, Steve, Coach Kerr, uh, from from him this season, and what kind of problems does he pose for for your defense? And Steve Kerr was straight up like, you know what? Uh, I've got to deal with my own problems with my own team. I honestly, I'm not gonna. Uh, entertain that question and then make up something and 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 sound like I know what I'm talking about. So I'm just going to spare you and say I haven't watched any Javante uh, Graham film. I'm sorry. Next, yeah, sorry. It was amazing. Yeah, and I I appreciated it. I which was is, like I was like if I don't want you to lie answer. to me. I know um, it's one of those things, right? Where and I'm guilty of this. We're all guilty of this in that situation. But like just as a general rule, if you're asking a question that you think you know the answer to, it's probably not worth asking the question. Yeah. It's sort of like in, in, in interviews is like, I've got, and, and look, this has happened to me multiple times. I remember once I had kind of devised, this is my first year on the beat. I had devised sort of what I thought was a good strategy. Um, and, and this is sort of to your pop point. This is in a room while NBA TV is like televising the press conferences. And I know this and, you know, again, like I'm a little nervous um, and you don't want to say something dumb you don't want to accidentally call, you know, Blake Griffin a different name, like, or whatever. Like, it's, you know, um, like Fred Katz did um, that one time. <laughs> like, it's, uh, you, you you have to kind of, whatever, you have to be on your, your, your best. And I remember asking Chris Paul and Blake Griffin were sort of at the podium, and I, the question I wanted to say was something like, you know, is there – do you feel like you have a mental sort of advantage in this series because you've never trailed? Like they were up one Oh two, one three, two, you know, like whatever the way it came out was, and it's a bad question. Um, and the way it came out was, uh, obviously you want to win. Um, but do you think it's even more important that you're winning? And Chris Paul looked at me like all side eyed Blake Irvin started laughing it was wildly embarrassing. And then uh, to make matters worse, the Clippers team photographer got a photo of it and put it up in the media room at the team's practice facility. No. Um, and I had to stare at it until they traded both those guys. That's bullying. So, yeah, <laughs> like right above where I sat, like a big picture of it. And then I once asked like a player, like, what was going through your mind when, I, when a shot went through the net? And they're like, oh, like we won. Like, I'm pretty happy about it. And it's just like, yeah, like uh, – I don't know what there, – there's no real answer to that. So it's trying to, like, improve this process is something that I've been trying to be cognizant of. But I don't know, man. I fall into it all the time where you ask dumb questions and you get bad answers. What do you do usually? Yeah. Some guys will be nice, and they'll try to give you good answers no matter what. Like, Doc Rivers just likes giving good answers, and he likes talking. And, you know, he'll, he'll do whatever with any kind of question. But, you know, um, you're right. Like, I think Kawhi challenges you. Pop challenges you. And ultimately, it makes you think a little bit more before you speak, and that's probably a good thing. Yeah, and Chris Paul, he challenges you too because he's – I don't yep. know. He, he – I, I don't think – in the same way that Pop does it, I don't think he uh, responds well to, like, the conventional question. Um, he just tosses it to the side. Well, I think with Chris, too, it's sort of like – like, he's a basketball genius. What happened with Jordan Bell's jersey, right, it was, like, a funny thing, and people thought – but it's like to me that was like the perfect sort of encapsulation of who Chris Paul is. Yeah, give, is give like the listeners guy. the background to that. Okay, so Chris Paul notices that a Timberwolves player comes into the game with his jersey untucked, and he points it out to the ref, yeah. 
and says that's against the rules. It's a delay of game. And the refs are like, okay, yeah, you're right. Like, and they call the delay a game. It was a technical. Um, this, is, this is happening in the last second and a half of a game, a close game, and it ends up ultimately leading to the Thunder going to overtime and winning, right? Like, it's a, a winning play um, in the snitchiest sense. But, like, this is a 1,000% who he is. I, I remember, uh, I forget who it was. I think and maybe it was, like, Lee Jenkins or somebody. This was years ago. It was um, in town working on a Chris Paul story, and we were talking about Chris Paul, and I said something like, he would be the world's worst person to play Monopoly with because, like, if your house rule was to call the game after an hour or to put $500 underneath free parking, like, and that isn't in the rule book, like, Chris would freak out. Or like, or he would, or he would use his knowledge of the rules against you, and that's what this is, right? Like, like you can't argue with him when he says, like, you know, well, according to NBA Rule Twenty Four Dash A Bylaw C, Jordan Bell's jersey must be tucked in two inches below his waistband. It's not. It should be a technical. Like, do something about it. Like, I think that's where some of his reputation with the refs are. Is like, is like, there's. I had a scout tell me I was talking about Chris Paul. A scout tell me he's like. The problem with Chris is that he's always right. I know. And and you uh, know what the best part about Jordan Bell's story is? Who the referee was. Scott Foster. His his arch rival, Scott Foster. Actually, like to prove the point that look, he, Chris is right. Like Scott Foster was like, you know what, Chris? Yep, you're right. I'm giving the technical. I can't say anything. I cannot appeal this decision. I wonder he, if he likes Scott Foster now. Like if this if, if this was like a hatchet bearing thing where like they've united over Chris's obsession with arcane, um, strange NBA rules. Like it's just to me, like it, it was just so perfect. And he's in such a unique situation this year, not playing for anything other than maybe a playoff berth, like not for the first time in six seasons, seven seasons, not on a team that's a quote unquote contender. You know, he's there's some games, his numbers are what they are. But, you know, in talking to him and talking to people around him, it's like he's doing – he's playing basketball the way he wants to play it right now. And I think um, that's kind of fun. And I like watching him do that, even though it's like wildly annoying. Um, and if you were playing against him, you'd be like, dude, like what the hell, man? Like seriously, like you want to win a game because someone didn't tuck their shirt in? And Chris Paul would be like, I want to win a game any way possible. Yes, and this is a good way to get into this is do you think that he's going to finish the season in OKC or do you think he's going to be moved? I think it's a really good question, Tom. Um, the issues are is that it's like, I mean, it might be one of the most, it's one of the hardest to trade contracts in the NBA, right? It's like he's no got other way to say it. Yep. Yep. Three, three, more, three more years at over, what is it like 130 million or something like that. It's like, it's an obscene amount of money. Over the next three seasons, it's 124 million over the next three seasons. He has a player option for 21-22, and the president. I'm telling you now. I'm gonna guess he's gonna pick that up, probably. Yeah, yeah. I I wrote it in the column. I said, uh, a he's the president of the players' union. Really bad look to turn down a player option to acquiesce a a trade, right? uh, For 44 million dollars, but also, Dan, it's 44 million dollars. So yeah, don't think um, that's going to happen. That'll buy you a lot of novelty Scott Foster voodoo dolls or whatever it is <laughs> that he that he possesses. Uh, no, he threw I, them I all away. Uh, all the voodoo dolls are gone. Yeah, I forgot they're good. They're yeah. good. Uh, so there's that, which would say, okay, well, like, who's going to do that? Who can take that amount of money on? Who has that kind of outgoing salary to send out, you know, for a single player? But 
there's two things that I think have happened that make me think that the chances of him getting moved are higher than the number would tell you. Um, one, you know, there are some good teams that need point guards and the point guard class, like an available trades. And I've been talking to scouts and executives about this because, um, and I don't think Chris Paul is ending up on any of these teams, but the Clippers and the Lakers both, I think could use a point guard and there aren't that many available. Like that makes sense. Start like starting mid tier starting point guards, right? You know, most teams are either either they have a young guy that they really like and they're going to grow with him in the in the position, the the Trey Youngs, the John Morant, et cetera, uh, or then pretty quickly. And I know this is going to sound uh, somebody or, or, or you know, pretty soon you might have to start talking yourself into like Jeff Teague. Um, like you know, do you think Derek Rose um, can be a starting point guard? Is that what is that the answer to what you're looking for? Is it you know, Reggie Jackson, is it, you know, I, I think a guy like Tomas Sadoransky is interesting um, for teams, for contenders that are picking up point guards, but um, it, it's a really, you know, Frank Nittle, uh, I can, I can never say his name. How do you say his name, by the way? What? I'm not uh, even going to, I'm going to, Nick. Yeah. How do you say it? Uh, I think it's, you know what? Now you've got me all, all flustered. It's like Nila Kina, right? It's Nila Kina. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Frank Nielakina is like another name I've heard a little Frankie bit about. Frankie Smokes. Yes. Maybe Frankie Smokes. About I, I called him Frankie Smokes on on <laughs> on the radio the other day um, because I didn't want to say his name out loud. Like these are the kind of the guys that you can maybe go out and get in trades. Uh, so if you're a team that's looking for like an impact player, and maybe it's not even just a point guard. It's like who knows what this trade market's going to look like if it's you know a little more depressed than maybe Chris Paul is more attractive in a month and a half than he is today. You know, finish the season. If I had to bet, I would say yes. Yeah. He'll finish the season, but it just, cause that number is just so hard, but I don't think he'll finish his contract with the Thunder. Agreed. I'm pretty confident about that. Agreed. Um, so he's got 38 and a half this year, 41 next year, and then a player option for 44 the following year. He's in the same bucket as Blake Griffin and Kevin Love to me. Just uh, three really good players. Wrong side of their careers, um, all three want to win, and they're on teams that are not winning. So I think of those three, Kevin Love is most likely to be moved um, because I think Detroit could probably tuck themselves into keeping Blake and going forward. But an executive told me today, what is Detroit going for here? If Blake and Drummond aren't winning right now, if they're not in the top four or in the conversation to get a a home court in, in the Eastern Conference playoffs, what do they envision this being long-term with Andre Drummond? Like you, you have to, you have to think about what are you going to give him an extension um, and then what? So I think Blake is in a tough spot because he was traded to, to Detroit. He's got a lot of money. He isn't healthy right now. He has to prove that he can play at a high level for, you know, 80 games. And I think Detroit's a a blow it up uh, candidate. I do. And I think what's interesting about Blake is, and this is a little bit sort of like, I mean, we were talking about Mello earlier. What does Blake Griffin look like as your second or third option? Because that's probably what he needs to be. I mean, it certainly can't be a first option. Um, He either needs to be a second or third option right on a title contender. At this stage of his career, uh, yes, yes. Yeah, right. Uh, The health and stuff. Yeah, it's too hard to count on him, you know, to be – really even the player that he was last year when he was very good. 
those guys, and I think it's true for Kevin Love, I think it's true for Chris Paul, when you're on sort of that that max deal and you're on the other side of it where you can't carry a team anymore, I mean, what contender wants to put that level of assets? Um, and, and what I mean by asset, I'm, I'm sorry, just that percentage of their salary cap into a player that's your third or your fourth best player. You have to have a pretty unique roster to do that. Um, you have to be in a weird position. And, and then also you need to, you need to be confident that that person can kind of come in and, and take a lesser role. And I think if there's like, this is something I totally believe in the NBA time is that if you're a great player, it's hard to do less than be a great player. Um, it's hard to Vince Carterize your yes. career. There aren't many guys. I think, I mean, Vince Carter is way more, um, and this is probably anecdotal, but I feel like there are way fewer Vince Carters than there are Carmelo Anthony's. That, you know, mostly it's superstars, you're a superstar, and then, you know, you go somewhere else and maybe you have a year or two as a role player, and then poof. Look at Darren Williams. It goes. Like, Darren I mean, Williams' yeah. fall was just like blink and it was over. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, you know, Paul Pierce had a year and in Washington, he had his time in Brooklyn, and the Clippers thought they were still getting a, a, a guy who could be a useful fifth starter, and he was very quickly out of their rotations, you know, and it was just, it was gone. And I'm not I'm not saying that's where, you know, Blake Griffin isn't at Paul Pierce's final year of his career in terms of productivity, but I do think that putting him on, say, the Boston Celtics, um, you know, it, it's hard to know how he would, how he would function as a guy who got 12 shots a game. I think, I think you know. Kevin Love in Portland is, is really interesting. I think it's really interesting because you can go two ways. You can go two ways here and say Kevin Love makes no sense in Portland because they are 10 and 15 as of this recording. They don't know if Nurk is going to be any good when he comes back or what kind of shape he's going to be when he comes back. And in the Western Conference, do you really want to – make it as an eight seed, play the Lakers and get uh, swept again. You know, do you really want that? And who who can guarantee that Kevin's going to be healthy enough to do that, to play at a high level on the other, other on the other hand, how is Portland going to acquire a Kevin love type player uh, in free agency? How mm-hmm. is that? It's not going to happen. So when you're Detroit, you trade for Blake because Hey, stars, you can't sign him. Can't yeah, sign him. You'll never be able to sign someone like that. Yeah, right? and, or you're gonna end up with just, Ben just, Gordon's and Josh Smiths and uh, and Greg Monroe contracts, right? Charlie Charlie Villanueva. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean you you overpay, right? And I think that's sort of it's an, you know hearing you talk about the Pistons and sort of what what do they want to do, um, you know, for a team like that in a market like that in a relatively new arena that doesn't get filled up, um, you know, just being above average is probably pretty important to them. In a vacuum, you would look at an organization and say, you either want to be moving towards a championship or moving. You always want to be moving towards a championship one way or another. Right. And then that might mean bottoming out and starting over and trying to draft superstars and go about it that way. Or it might mean, you know, pushing all your money and your, your chips in to acquire stars and try to win it, you know, sort of the Laker way right now or the Clipper way. Um, you know, you want to move in one of those paths. And generally speaking, the worst place to be in the NBA is the middle. Um, but I think for teams like Portland, I think like for teams like Detroit, you know, the middle is like not a bad place to be necessarily. 
um, particularly Detroit, where, you know, last year when they were making their playoff push, um, early in the season when they got off to such a good start, I went up there for a game, and, you know, there people weren't that excited about that team. And, you know, maybe it's they're, they're still relatively new to playing downtown, and, you know, they just built a new facility in the city, and they're trying to do things that way. But, um, yeah, I mean, you trade Blake Griffin, you blow it up in Detroit, it's a pretty lean situation already, and now you get lean really quick. And, yeah, and, and then you've maybe got to make a, a lot of really happens, good decisions. Man. Yeah, like I just feel maybe. like maybe that happens. Um, but I feel like for every minute that Blake Griffin is out there or Andre Drummond or Derrick Rose or Reggie Jackson, uh, you're taking minutes away from someone who could just hit. Like a, I, I know that this is these are outliers, but you know a Pascal Siakam or a Fred Van Vliet or uh, uh, Devonte Graham or uh, Ma- Malcolm Brogdon who came into the Milwaukee Bucks situation where it was like, you know these aren't these aren't lottery picks where you have to play these guys and you have to play them right. But I mean it's sort of a, I mean I, you look at Detroit. I mean like they do kind of try to play some of those guys already. You know what I mean like. They play Bruce Brown. They play you, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like like they do play these guys. It, it's not like, you know, and they're taking their time with Demboya and stuff like that. And uh, that seems to be, you know, their path forward with him is, is going to be sort of a little bit of a long view, it appears, uh, that he's just so raw. But, um, you know, they play. Um, and and they've, they've gotten, you know, pretty good minutes from Kennard this season. Um, and stuff like that. I just think that, yeah, I mean, you're right. Like if your ceiling is the five seed, like you're probably, that's probably not a great place to live. If that's even your ceiling, right? Like maybe it's more like the seven. Um, and I, and again, I think in a vacuum, you would say, all right, well then let's strip it down for parts. Right. And we'll figure out what we can get for everybody. And we'll move forwards with our young, with the young players we like, and we'll start all over again. But it's, but you're right. Like Detroit, like if you know who you are as an organization, like they're not going to sign a max level free agent unless it's somebody that they're grossly overpaying, right? Um, so and hitting the rebuilds hard. To... Look at Chicago. Uh, look at Atlanta. Mm-hmm. They have Trey Young and John Collins, and they still. It, I mean, John hasn't played uh, much this year, but yeah. even even when you you hit and strike uh, gold with with Trey Young, uh, it's still hard. It's still hard. Yes. So maybe maybe their maybe it maybe their version of a reset is you look at Blake Griffin and you hope that he's healthy and you reset around him. Maybe and and, and maybe it involves lying to yourself, you know, about it. And it's probably not a good idea um, to do these types of things. But sometimes, you know, when the alternative is twenty wins and forty uh, percent full stadium, um, you know, you 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 lie to yourself a little. Uh, I was lying to myself a little when I was looking at Rondo's three-point percentage this year and realizing, wait a minute, is he like going to be good for them this year? I did a huge uh, deep dive into Lakers last year and seeing that uh, Rondo, when he played with LeBron, it was like kryptonite. I did this thing with Norris Cole in Miami where everyone thought I was like a a huge hater, uh, Norris Cole. And I don't know, it was kind of harsh – pointing this out to a young player. But when I was writing, mm-hmm. I was like, any time that this guy steps on the floor with LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, Ray Allen, they can't outscore their opponent. They can't. 
what it, like not one game, two games, ten games. It was like the entire season. You put Norris Cole on the floor with those four Hall of Famers, and they're a 500 team. And the same thing happened with Rajon Rondo, where the idea of Rondo and the cerebral basketball IQ Rondo uh, made a lot more sense on paper. And then when he plays with LeBron James, it was a disaster. This year, it's different. And I don't know whether it's uh, you know the shooting percentages. I, he's shooting 50-plus from, from three-point land. Um, he... He's playing with AD again, and I think, I don't know, from afar, LeBron and AD are playing great, but also the rotation is so much better than I thought they'd be, the role players. Yeah, and I mean, I think the Rondo thing is, like, a really good example of it. Like, you know, kind of quietly has become a fairly competent, low-volume three-point shooter in the um, last chapter or so of his career. Um, Obviously not to 53%, but, you know, he shot at 36% last year. Two years ago in Chicago, it was 37%. Never really more than, you know, but those two are wide so. open threes, right? Like those are wide. And open that, threes well, exactly. Right. And, but who are two better? Can you think of two better players to get you wide open threes than LeBron James and Anthony Davis? Yeah. Right. Like a LeBron James, Anthony Davis pick and roll, like in addition to just being devastating in that way, um, you know, between trying to figure out how you're going to stop those two different guys. Now you add in the fact that you've got shooters, you know, you've got maybe a Troy Daniels on the court. Maybe it's Caruso. Maybe it's um, Danny Green. You, you know, you have these competent shooters. And this was, to me, um, KCP. Um, you, this was the puzzling part of their roster last year where they virtually ignored shooting. Um, you know, and I know I mentioned Rondo and KCP. They were both there last year. But um, th- there weren't really any other spacers. Um, Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, these, these guys weren't shooting threes confidently or consistently enough to be real factors. Um, you know, you've got a guy in Rondo who will step into an open three now. Um, I've seen him in games in my life. You know, is, is it a good idea for Rondo if he's going to take nine open threes in a game? Like, I think there's a reason, right, that he's open. Um, like, coaches and, coaches and teams are willing to live with that. Uh, but he's been good, and he's been good with Caruso as kind of a a bench backcourt, um, you know, I, I think, you know, we'll see what they do now with Avery Bradley and kind of how they split those minutes and figure it out. I think one of the things about the Lakers start so far was like a lot of their sort of rotation decisions have been made out of necessity, you know, like guys have been injured or whatever. And it's like, okay, so like, we'll just do it this way then. And they've, you know, haven't perfectly like reintegrated guys like Kuzma. It's been a little hard. We'll see what happens now with Avery Bradley, how that manages now that Caruso seems like somebody that needs to be playing. Uh, you know, I, I think Trey Daniels has valuable minutes to give to them. Um, they've played around a little bit with Tim Cook in some situations. It's, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it hasn't been a science yet exactly as to, you know, who their eight or nine guys are going to be at, at any given night. Um, so far that's worked for them, but I, I think, you know, at least, you know, the people that I talk to seem to think that long-term, right? Like having too many guys is uh, almost a bigger problem as having too few in some ways. Do you think their amazing start makes Kuzma more expendable or less? Personally, I think he's more expendable in some ways. Um, I mean, I think that they can look at this situation and, and say, you know, we're every good as, we're every bit as good as the Clippers. The rest of the West isn't what we think it is. You know, they're not a, I mean, they're not dumb. They look over and see Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. And while the Clippers are winning and they're in second place in the West, they're, you know, those two guys have 
played together, I think, 11 times now or 12 times, and they've both played well. And, and well is, like, not even great. They both played well on the same night, I think, twice. Um, but it's really been more a one or the other type of situation. It hasn't been like a seamless fit the way that LeBron and AD kind of have. You know, early on there was a little bit in terms of, like, LeBron was being a little too deferential, I think. Um, they were trying too hard to get AD the ball in the post, but they, they pretty quickly outgrew that stuff, and they seem to be kind of, you know, really humming together right now. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe you look at – I mean, that the issue with trading Kyle Kuzma is, like, he is the asset you have left, right? So if you're going to trade him, it's, it, it has to be the right trade and the perfect trade. Yeah. And I'm not 100% sure exactly what that deal is for them. Um, you know, and – like I said, I mean, point guard is sort of the obvious one, but if Rondo is playing the way Rondo's playing, um, he can play important point guard minutes. He doesn't turn the ball over. You know, he's a low volume open shooter and he knows how to run an offense and play with a, a rim running big like like AD. Like, that's kind of a good fit. I went so fast from this. The Clippers team's depth is, depth is so much better than the Lakers to like, wait a minute. Like, the Lakers have bodies. And Dwight is... Man, the mea culpa on Dwight, uh, and maybe he falls yep. apart here, but the I, I deserve to deliver a mea culpa. I'd seen it so many times. Uh, Boy Who Cried Wolf, the idea that he had changed, that he was a new player, that he – you know what? Maybe it's just I'm a minimum guy now. I, I, there's, no, there's nowhere left to go. Like if I don't play this role and if I don't do the things that everyone's told me, I'm out. I'm in China. Yeah, I mean I think it, those things were all – incredible motivators for him. I think that being around LeBron James, I think is a positive. Um, I think, you know, just the embrace that the Lakers fans have given him, which is bizarre. How quickly, how, how quickly they, how quickly they forgot everything, um, you know, is a little bizarre, but he, I mean, he's a fan favorite right now. He is like, the locker like he's the bench cheerleader guy. He's that dude with the goofy handshakes. He's the one that is the first guy off the bench to celebrate. And, you know, is it maybe a little bit of like a put on? Like does he sometimes look like a guy who's trying to be a good oh, teammate? Yes. Uh, all the time. He's always uh-huh. like a hundred percent, right? Like like it doesn't it doesn't exactly like like Jared Dudley to me, like, is a dude that is like okay, like what he does is like a genuine like that's who he is authentically is he can deflect stuff. He's things that like these things serve purposes sort of in the ecosystem of an NBA locker room. You know, Dwight feels like he's trying to do that stuff in some ways and like trying to be off the bench to cheer and trying to hustle for loose balls. It doesn't seem wildly natural, but he hasn't stopped doing it yet. You know, there, there really have only been a couple little hiccups, um, you know, but I mean, he doesn't even really try to post up that much. You know what I mean? No, and I, I no. think like, and, and to me, that was the thing that I was watching earlier the year is like, all right, he's going to have like, he had a game earlier this season that I thought was like a perfect Dwight Howard game. He had like two points, six rebounds and like two blocks and like 18 minutes. And I'm like, if, if this is what he's going to do off the bench, like this is perfect. Right. Like this is he and he changed the game. He won them the game that night with his defensive energy, with the way he worked for some loose balls and with the way he, you know, protected the rim. Um, he, he didn't need to do anything else. And then, um, 
you know, like two games later, I think I saw him put his hands up in the post for the ball, and I'm like, oh, boy. Like, here we go. Like, this is the problem. Like, now and now he's had a little success and got a little praise for it. Like, you know, he's going he's gonna to want to be more of a star. And it just hasn't happened. Um, it, it's been – it's been really kind of fun to watch sort of a player. Re- I mean, totally reinvent himself. And it seemed too like, you know, we, again, this kind of ties into what we were talking about with Mello earlier, like to see a guy like Dwight, who seemed like, it seemed like that should always be pretty seamless because like dunk rebound block shots was kind of what he was doing at the start of his career to, to, to make himself a star, and you then, know? And, and then, then like, he started oh, listening to Shaq or trying to appease the Shaqs of the world. Yeah, you know, and become more of a, and it it's been sort of a return more to like who he used to be as a player, obviously in way smaller volume, with um, you know some a lot less explosiveness. But um, every once in a while, he'll still dial it up and, and, and make a play. Or and you look at him and it's like, oh yeah, like that was the guy who um, did all like you know the dunk contest stuff and like you know, was a, one of the most dominant players and in the NBA. It's crazy. It's like one of those things like I'm, I'm up with the belief. And I don't know how you are. I mean, I'm of the belief that he is like a no doubt hall of fame player, oh, like yeah. no doubt. Right. Like there's no question. And it's funny when you talk to people, um, sometimes who are a little more casual about the NBA or like more into the Lakers. Now that like LeBron and AD are there and you mentioned that like Dwight Howard's going to be in the hall of fame. They're like, you're like, what? It's like no, like this guy was the like the best center in the NBA for eight seasons. Eight All NBA, like, eight. <laughs> like like, you, like Chris Bosh was on All NBA like once, and we're like, yep, he's in. Yeah, like no, like Dwight was like a generational big man, and um, I wrote just, a column like, once saying that the Heat should think about trading LeBron for Dwight Howard. I once wrote that column that Pat should pick up the phone. <laughs> And put that on the table. <laughs> like that was a real thing. That was a real thing Ugh. in 2011, where it was like maybe, maybe, maybe this isn't gonna work out. Maybe LeBron and Dwayne just can't share the ball, and they need like a defensive minded yeah. big. Well, and that's sort of right. Like that Heat team is sort of like the hope for the Clippers too. In some ways, is that it's just like it's just gonna take time for like those two guys to kind of shuffle out who's gonna do what. And, you know, and it can't just be one night it'll be you, the next night it'll be me. You know, we'll just see who's playing well that night. Like, they're going to, for them to get to where they need to go, they're going to both have to play well on the same night in some really important games. And they're going to have to have a, a pretty clear blueprint for how to do that. And and I think you're right. Like, that first Heat team, like, it took time. Like, it took time for Chris Bosh to know sort of where to pick his spots and to float more to the three-point line and to spend more of his energy on defense that took time, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. When you see these two guys together, Tom, and, I, and I've, you know, I've done a bunch of their games this year, it doesn't look quite right yet. Uh, they haven't 100% figured out how to, you know, sort of maximize each other's abilities and, and how to, and I don't know, that maybe you never do, but but there's a way to kind of figure out how, to, how you can work together with someone and how you know who does what. And the Clippers haven't quite gotten there yet. Um, with those two guys and to, to get to where they want to be, they're going to need to. Um, but to me, like, I think that's, you know, that, that early heat team with, with Wade, Bosch, um, and LeBron, and I've got another theory too, that I want to pitch you about the Clippers and their superstar thing that that's kind of interesting, but, um, you know, that early team and their early struggles trying to figure it out. Like, 
I wasn't there, but I assume a lot of it was just like you have great players who want to be great together. Uh, people are being selfless and trying to make the right play and trying to do the right thing. And instead of just kind of playing and like letting sort of the natural hierarchy sort of decided it itself. It's all about ego and it's not about your own ego. It's about trying not to upset the other person's ego. So I think a lot of the issues, LeBron and Dwayne and, uh, I think they were overblown. Like the point differential that they had was the best in the NBA through 20 games, 30 games, whatever it was. They they just, in clutch situations, it became take your turn, uh, look at the other guy and like stand on the other side of the floor. And I think it was about ego and not wanting to upset the other friend, like your buddy, uh, that you're going to take the ball and attack and look the other one off because they've never had to look off another player that was their equal. Ever, and so they knew how that felt when a lesser player looked you off, and they didn't want that for LeBron. LeBron didn't want that for Dwayne, and I think there has to be a moment that Paul George and Kawhi just sit down and say, "I don't care. I don't care who gets the bucket. I don't care who gets the last second shot. I don't care who gets the the headline. I don't care who gets on Worldwide Wob. I don't care any about that." I just think we need to win this game. We, that all I care about is winning. All I care about is that at the and, end of the day, we're think, happy about it. And it's funny. I like you know they have actually like literally said these things. Like well, Paul George has, Kawhi has hasn't said this much. But have but, they? But, like, have know, they like, really had that that talk of like? I mean, I th- I think that was sort of like implicit in kind of when you when you join up with somebody, right? Like that there's going to be some inherent sacrifice. But I I still think that it's all more it does still feel more like, okay, that's fine that we say it. Like, what does it look like? Yeah. And, and how do we make it work? Um, my other weird, like kind of clipper theory and, and someone pitched this to me was like, you know, we were talking about like big threes and stuff like that. And they're like, Oh, like, well, like what's weird about the Clippers is that they have a big three. And it's like, they do. And I'm like, Oh, like, do you mean like Lou or do you mean like Montrez? And they're like, I mean, Lou and Montrez. And it's sort of like the duo, the Lou Williams Montrez Herald duo, like the pick and roll combination, is so good that it, it, it functions almost as it's, as a third superstar um, that like yeah. needs to get its looks and needs to get its shots. And what's weird though to do that is now now that you have three superstars, but it's really four players <laughs> that you're trying to appease to. And, and I think there's been some kind of weird stuff with that, like. Yeah, you know, in a perfect world, you would stagger, right, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. You would always have one of those two guys on the court, and you'd be, you know, you'd always have probably the best player on the floor in the game. Um, you know, what's weird with this, with the Lou Williams, Montrez, Harrell pick and roll, though, is that it's so good and it's so effective that you don't want to stifle that either. And I think what one of the things that Doc Rivers has done that's been kind of interesting is he's gone, like, you know, these two to three minute little stretches um, with where Kawhi and PG both sit just to kind of see what those two get. Like it's almost like they stagger those, those four players into like three to separate superstar units sometimes. Um, And it's, it's been fun kind of watching them try to figure that out. Obviously they're supremely talented. They're super deep. Um, They have a lot of really good players and they're going to win a lot of games this season. But like watching them try to iron that stuff out uh, is, is bad fun. Ultimately, they'll probably be all right because in addition to um, having all this talent, like they had, just have like a good culture of playing hard and they're tough, you know. And, and that stuff matters. Yeah, 
I think the institutional knowledge helps too. It's just like, unlike the Lakers with Frank Vogel and Jason Kidd and Lionel Hollins, it's just like they're all trying to figure it out together. Whereas I feel like Doc and Balmer and Lawrence Frank, and it's just, I don't know. There's a, there's a lot more rue there in the base than in, than in, uh, than in Lakerland. All right, let's take a quick break to hear about a podcast that should be in your rotation. Hello, this is Kareth Burke. On the Run and Plays podcast, Warriors head coach Steve Kerr told Logan and I why he and Draymond Green are so similar. We are equally as competitive and we're equally as likely to blow up. Either one of us will snap, you know, he'll get a tee, I'll break a clipboard. (laughs) It's just the way we're built. That's how much it means to us. To listen to the full interview with Steve, download the Run and Plays podcast for free wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, back to the conversation. So here's the thing I want to ask you about. I was talking to a scout yesterday, and he was telling me that when we were talking about like Vince Carterize your career, Lou Williams being the distributor, where he he gets yeah. uh, Trez the ball in the perfect pocket like every time. LeBron James and Anthony Davis, the haberset this week was that LeBron James has delivered 75 assists to Anthony Davis this season, which is 16 more than the next highest guy, next highest duo in the NBA. That would be Ben Simmons and Tobias Harris. The third on the list at that point when I did this was Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell. And the scout was like beside himself. Was like if I if you had told me that early in in Lou Will's career that he would be one of the top assist guys in the NBA, I would have thought you're nuts, right? Right? Like he, he is, he, it's not that he's not talented. It's just that he wasn't a guy who looked to, you know, facilitate. Um, Lou for one was like, you know, this guy was all about getting buckets, getting to the free throw line. And yes, he does all of those things now, but what is it about that Trez Lou? I don't know. It's an off court friendship. Like, why is it so beautiful? I mean, they're like pick and roll soulmates, right? It's sort of how it, it sort of played out is that you have this guy, and Lou Williams, who's kind of like slow and and calm in a way that's like very collected, and then you have a a big who is like hold the turbo button down and sort of how he rolls and slips, and then it's something about like the contrast in those styles that works. I think you know part of it was like it was you know you mentioned this with the Pistons, but like it was forged out of necessity um, with the Clippers. Um, you know, as in the aftermath of trades, you know, when whether it was sending Blake Griffin out or, or, or Tobias Harris or Gallinari injuries, it was like, oh, like we need to get, we need to score. Like, how are we going to do it? And, you know, these two guys fell into this thing. Um, you know, it's not like, and I'm, I I don't know that if they're great friends or bad friends. I mean, I assume that it seems like they get along well and they've obviously elevated each other's games. But they just have like a, this super nice feel for one another on the court, and, and you're right. I mean, he throws Harold like some ridiculous bounce passes, um, you know, in the most crowded part on the court, and they almost always lead to dunks, um, like just really easy baskets. And it's gonna it's gonna lead to Montrezl Harrell getting a massive contract next summer, I think, in free agency. It's not a great class, and he seems like somebody who's going to get a, a real big look from from somebody and it might even be the clippers um you know he, he's become a really really versatile player and kind of it, it, you're right like the Lou thing and, and, and like the passing and stuff and 
I mean, I, I think he leads the Clippers in assists right now. Um, the it, it's just those two guys are just such on a string together, and they have a lot of continuity, and they have a lot of knowledge of one another, and um, they just seem to be two steps ahead of whoever's guarding them. It, 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 they really do function as like a as sort of a singular unit. You know what? I think when you mentioned that, I thought it was going to work out. The idea that Lou and Trez are like the same, like singular thing, and then that's the big three. I like this theory, especially because you can thrive with like the pick and roll threat of those two and not offend Paul George and Kawhi simply because those two can dominate a game on a defensive end. So, like, mm-hmm. unlike, unlike maybe a Luka or a James Harden or a Russell Westbrook who need the ball in their hands to thrive because defensively they're just, they just either don't have the energy or the, the uh, ability to do it. So I would almost, if I'm Doc, I would just challenge Paul George and Kawhi Leonard if they're playing with those two dudes, just be like, murder the opponent. Just murder them defensively and own that side of the floor and challenge them to do that because they can't. Well, I think... Yeah, and I mean, and I think that was some. I mean, like, look at the job that you know the Clippers did last night on, on Kyle Lowry and Pascal Siakam. You know, and 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 that's like one of the other weird things too is like, like they those two guys don't even have to be first in line for like the hey go ruin a game defensively, because that's what they tell Mo Harkless to do. There's too right, like yeah. he like he gets the first crack at all of this stuff, right? <laughs> so it's like, and if, and if if for whatever reason it's not Mo Harkless. Then it can be maybe it's Pat Beverly, um, and then maybe it's Paul George, and then maybe it's Kawhi. Um, so they, I mean, they just have a lot of options for like sort of game wreckers on that side of the court. Offensively, I, I think the sense is that they're going to be okay, but they're just still trying to figure everything out. Um, I think getting Landry Shamit back and getting him in rhythm, um, they could use another shooter. I, I like I'm a, they haven't shot the ball very well as a team. Kawhi hasn't shot the ball very well. Um, you know, and you you worry a little bit if some of that is lower body related, but uh, ultimately, I mean, I think people still seem to think that it's them, the Lakers, and then kind of everybody else, especially in the West. Do you? I, I felt this way in Miami. Do you feel like you have to stick to your guns when you make a proclamation preseason like the Clippers are going to win it all? I'm going to just say that all season long, because so I I stay loyal to that pick. Or are you of the opinion, like, you know what? If the Lakers look better, I'm just going to say the Lakers are going to win it all. <laughs> um, you know, I think because uh, you probably get asked that question every day. So, who's going to win? I mean, uh, who's going to win I, it all? Maybe subconsciously, then that's why I picked the Rockets to have the best record in the West. <laughs> just to avoid it. <laughs> yes. Yes. You're not having your, you're not having that argument with your wife. You're just gonna you're just gonna change the goalpost. Yeah. yeah. It's just like let's and, and you know I, I'll say like I picked the regular season. I didn't pick the playoffs yet. I don't know who's in the playoffs. Um, That's you know. Good. Look, I, I I think the Clippers the the way that I've kind of the, I think the way that I've landed on it and I think it's a good analogy. Maybe it's not. Is sort of that the the Lakers are a hundred dollar bill that you have in your pocket. Like, you know what you can do with a hundred bucks. It's, it's your money. You it's in your hands and the Clippers are like a hundred dollars in stock. And you, you just, you're not quite sure. It's not tangible. You can't go spend it yet. It hasn't matured or or maybe they're a bond or something like that. Um, You have a good set. You have a, you think it'll probably be something, but you never know. And that's sort of how I feel about the first 20 plus games of the season. Like we know what the Lakers are. I feel like we've seen a version of their ceiling already and like how devastating they can be. 
Um, we haven't seen the best in the Clippers. Um, and I still, and I'm not sure whether or not that the idea of what the best of the Clippers could be is better than the Lakers. Um, you know, I think it is, but I haven't seen it yet. I don't, I like, I don't have that in my wallet. So I'm going to switch. I like the analogy, but I'm going to switch gears here because I want to get you this, get on, uh, get on this topic before you leave is you had a great column. One of the columns that I, this happens all the time when I see a column get written and I feel like, damn it, I wish I wrote that column. Yeah. The, the coaches, I know that feeling. the coaches sleep or stress, uh, being an NBA coach you wrote, I think last week may, it might've been, mm-hmm. um, awesome. Awesome. Uh, you talked to Scotty Brooks, and he had the best line. Uh, the coach of the Wizards goes, if you start the season at six feet tall, it just wears you down. At the end of the season, you're going to be five foot two. And yeah. I was just like, man, that just says that just says so. I loved that quote from Scott Brooks. Maybe he stole it from somewhere, but what else did you get from that story, hunting down these, these uh, coaches and asking them, hey, uh, What's your life like? Like, does it feel yeah. like just is this? Does this suck? So the story idea kind of came out of the NBA Finals last year, Tom. When um, I don't know, were you in the room when uh, Rick Carlisle gave the uh, the award to um, Frank Layden? I did not. Like I was not there. No, I was not there for that one. Oh, in Toronto. Okay, so Rick Carlisle presents some like lifetime coaches achievement award to Frank Layden, uh, the longtime jazz coach and executive funny guy. And I remember seeing Rick Carlisle and he was like tanned. Um, and like had like life in his face and thinking like, wow, Rick Carlisle looks good. Like, um, and then I like thought about like, why, why do I think that? It was like, oh, because I always see him during the middle of the season and he's pale and, you know, like his eyes are sunk back into his head a little bit. He looks tired all the time. And it was sort of like, well, how and why, right? Like, and in in a league where right now I feel like, and you've done great work on this too, where teams and and organizations are looking for ways to just be even half a percent better, you, you know, where, the margins and talent are pretty slim generally. And, and so you're trying to look for any competitive advantage you can find things like wellness. Come on. And so, and so that's why I, I started looking around on it. And, you know, I had a conversation with Elvin Gentry when I was in New Orleans where Elvin kind of mentioned he was working with the sleep doctor because he couldn't sleep. And I sort of asked him like, well, like how do you coach in New Orleans and just not weigh like 300 pounds? Yeah. You know what I mean? Cause you, you can walk out of the arena after every game and go eat like a world-class meal and drink till two thirty in the morning. And it's like a pretty acceptable part of that lifestyle. You know what I mean? And, and he was like, I have a rule where like, I'll only go out to eat when I'm in town once a week. And I started to pick up on other guys' rules. And I just started to ask like, what are your rules? Like, you know, and that's where Terry Stott said, like after home games, he goes back to his house and watches Madam secretary or blacklist and not game film. He would go watch a show, and uh, I mean, I haven't seen either of these shows, but like a network like procedural drama is like the come down, right? Like for <laughs> from it's NBA the game, of, it's like, of NBA games, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's very wholesome. Um, the other really wholesome one was like that uh, the Wizards team doctors told Scott Brooks he needed to stop eating his like post game, uh, his like midnight bowl of cereal at home. Daniel, that he would have like a giant a bowl of cereal. You want to hear a confession from me? Are you a giant bowl of cereal guy? I'm a giant bowl of cereal guy. 
late night, um, my wife and I, like, instead of having, like, a dessert or ice cream or chocolate yeah. or we've convinced ourselves that it's healthy to eat, like, a bowl of cereal at, like, when we were watching TV. So, we'll like, I'll watch uh, a game and she'll, like, watch whatever she's watching and I'll just eat my bowl of, like, Frosted Mini Wheats. And yeah, I no, do that the, all the, the, the time. The wizard training staff would not be on board with this. So it's not good for you, I. but it's my habit. It's my guilty pleasure is that, like, at the end of a long day of work, I want to just, like, sit back and have a bowl of cereal. And it is bad. Honey Bunches of Oats has lots of sugar, and it probably does not help me sleep. Bunches. Probably, probably bunches of it. <laughs> yes, yes. So I I um I thought it was a great story and and uh I I feel like um the Steve Clifford Van Gundy tree they don't understand the idea of not watching the game four times over they don't yeah. it does not register in their brain if like I I would go to Cliff and I'd be like hey uh so uh what what are your thoughts on the game last night and uh, why did the Clippers you know rip you guys apart in the pick and roll. He's like, you know, Tom, I, I watched it like three, three times over. And I'm telling you, we, we just, and I'm sitting there like, what the game ended at like 11 o'clock and he's watching three th- times the game. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, this can't be healthy. Well, and, and, sure he's probably, and he's probably watching three times uh, of scouting film on the next opponent too. Right. It's like you, you hear this and, and, and it, it was like, it's born out of sort of like the selfishness of like, this is like, these are decisions that I have to make as a reporter too. to a certain extent. Like, how do I unwind after a game? Like, do I eat a, a, a late dinner? Do I go get drinks? Um, usually. Yeah. To both. Um, like, how do I find like the proper balance? Am I getting enough sleep? And, and um, you, you know, and I'm what I do or what we do in this league, like doesn't impact wins and losses, but like, you know, if you're a coach and you're not you're not there physically, it's way harder to get there mentally. And I think um, it is a it is a grinded out type of culture, especially for guys that have like worked their way up to head coach. Yep. Um, you, you know what I mean? Versus guys that were former players and stuff like people who have sort of like the institutional respect. Um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and it was in the story a little bit, but I didn't like really dig deep on it. Was nice. I spoke to somebody about this too, and they're like, "Yeah, here's another reason why you need to be healthy because nobody really wants to play for like a schlubby coach." Oh, I love that part. It was such a it was such a uh, obvious thing. It, like I it's was like, like it, it, I was like, yeah, I wouldn't like, want got... to work for a guy who looks like he's not an athlete, right? Like if I'm an a- a yeah. pro athlete and I'm I'm a well oiled machine and I'm taking cues from a dude who looks like he's at uh, Cheers, right? Hmm. Yeah, and it's sort of like you better be in shape. Like, I don't know how you're going to demand hard work and accountability out of people if, if you can't control your diet, and you can't control, you you know, the fact that you have to buy new suits every every three months because you don't fit in the old ones. Like, like that stuff all gets noticed, and you know, and if you're a team that's not maybe winning and stuff like that, like players are always looking for excuses to to shift credibility to somewhere or to shift accountability and and they'll target you. And I thought that was, I thought that was really interesting too. Um, like I had heard from, you know, one agent who had told me that, um, he was advising an assistant coach client that, uh, you know, 
if you really want to be a head coach, like you might need to lose like 25 pounds then you might need to go to a tailor because <laughs> yeah. like look more head coachy, you know? And, uh, it makes sense. There was a uh, one time uh, I called Mike Budenholzer and he was like, Hey, uh, sorry, I'm on the treadmill right now. Is, is that all right? And I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's totally fine. Um, can, do you want me to call you another time? He's like, no, 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 it's fine. My mom told me that I, I looked like I put on some weight. So now I'm trying to work <laughs> it off. And I'm just sitting here like he's he's surrounded by fitness gurus. Like we're like and and yet it's the mom call. It was so adorable that like Coach Bud was like, you know what? Uh, I do need to drop a couple uh, lbs. Mom, mom is calling and telling me I look. Fat. He was one of the, he was one of the guys I talked to for the story, and he was the one who said that he thinks it's easier to stay in shape during the season, in part because of the inherent pressure of the fact that you're around people who look like Giannis, and, and that you a have access right there. There's yeah, and, there's and you have no shortage. This amazing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this amazing facility that's right next to your office, and you've got you know, a robust sort of uh, performance staff and you have access to them. And the difference being that um, the, uh, you, you know, I would say that um, the big difference is for, for Bud is that he said when he goes, you know, in the summer, that's like when he lets himself go and <laughs> go on vacations and you do all that stuff that the structure of the season, like maybe helps a little bit. Well, uh, I'm going to go eat a bowl of cereal. All right, that'll do it for this week's episode of The Haber Show. That was Dan Wojcicki. Go follow him at on uh, on Twitter at D-A-N-W-O-I-K-E Sports. Dan Wojcicki Sports uh, does a great job over there at the LA Times. Also a really good eater. Like, I love going out to grab food with uh, Dan Wojcicki. Um, go subscribe, rate, and review to this podcast. If you haven't already, go tell your friends, your family, your enemies, all of them. Um, go listen to the previous episode. We go back in time to the Suns-Lakers stories with Amin Al-Hassan from ESPN, the former executive for the Phoenix Suns. All right, until next time.